You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. People have everything that they need to um, to come up with their, their own projects. And I feel all we need to do is provide that platform for them to step on um, to build those projects. I quite like the concept of being a citizen. I'm sure it has its downfalls. But when I compare it to terms like consumer, customer or user, it seems to convey ideas of community, contribution, service and responsibility much more strongly. For this week's guest, creating platforms that form a base for citizens to build their own projects and to come together with government, private sector and public servants to facilitate positive change within their communities is at the heart of his two inspiring ventures, Creative Suburbs and Code for Australia. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Alvaro Maz about the subtle disruption of citizen engagement. So, Alvaro, so good to be sitting here with you today. Um, do you mind actually explaining where we are? <laughs> yes, so we are in the very middle of the Queen Victoria Market, and it's on a Wednesday, um, so there's no one here except for those who organise themselves. Yeah. Queen Victoria Market is perhaps the number one tourist attraction of Melbourne, I think? I would hope so. Like, I was thinking about it earlier today about how, like, when I first moved to Melbourne, I was like, whoa, so what do I do? Um, and I was told to come to the Vic Market, and I was like, what do you go there for? And, yeah, a couple of months later, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is the jewel of the city. Really? That's what you felt when you found it? Totally. Like I, I do like food um, a fair bit, and so that was kind of like what attracted me here. But then, I really think that markets anywhere in the world are the really best representation of a city. So when you go to a market, you can see like a microcosm of what the city really is. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I. I came to the Vic Market a bit as a kid, but it's funny that you picked this place because only two weeks ago I've started coming here on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning and doing my weekly shop. And I love it. Like it is, it's such a good vibe and there's, I went on a little tour to help me pick out all the, you know, the good quality food spots as well. Um, it's interesting to hear you say that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I used to work um, just around the corner and it was amazing. Every Friday I would come here to like grab a bunch of stuff for everyone to have a kind of like a community lunch we used to call it at work so i had a tomato guy a fruit lady and all this other stuff and i still sort of come every now and then and they're like hey here you are yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so is that why did you actually pick this place for our conversation um it is my favorite place in melbourne it's definitely um like i said it's it's one of those things that it that allows you to see what Melbourne is going through at any point in time um, based on the people that come here, based on the people that sell here. Um, and I also love food and I love the food that is sold here. So it is kind of like when you ask me pick a spot, I was like, well, it's not really related to the work that I do, um, but it is my favorite place. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, do you want to tell us then how 
well, how markets, perhaps for you, you know, you're talking about how markets really define a city. What were markets for you growing up? What did they represent? So I grew up in Colombia until I was, I was born there and lived there until I was 11. Um, and unfortunately, I, get, I didn't get to experience what a market in Colombia because most of the time markets in developing countries, as you may probably guess, they're for like very far apart from the city and they're messy and they're disorganized. And when you're a kid, um, your parents say you should not go to messy, disorganized places. Um, so they sort of kept me away from those places. Um, I only got to know about the markets when I moved to Melbourne. Um, and then, like as I was saying, yes, um, a little bit a while ago, um, I first thought, like, what is it about the market? And then it took me a little bit to discover it. Yeah. yeah. So you lived in Colombia until you were 11? Yes. Yeah, where did you move after that? So then I moved to Colombia's most beautiful city, Miami. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a bit um, sad, the amount of people that speak Spanish, or the, the very few people that speak English, I would say, in, in Miami. But um, it was a ton of fun. Like, I lived there until I was 18, um, so I did, like, middle school, high school in Miami, so as you, it's, it's not too far away from what Miami, you think Miami would be like. Lots of beach, lots of like, I don't know, just nonsense people going out on a boat and partying a lot. And for me, it was perfect. So that's when kind of like you discover all those sorts of things. Yeah. 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 Um, so Columbia, Miami, Melbourne? Was Melbourne next? No, then it was Sydney. So I, the way that I ended up in Australia, I applied to, I didn't know what to study like any other kid. So I ended up applying to different countries to, like I wanted to travel and my way of traveling was like, I'm gonna go and study overseas. So I applied to like five different countries. Every country was a different university, of course. And every university had a different degree. So the first, very first acceptance letter that I got back was from Sydney. I was like, oh, what did I apply for? <laughs> I was like, psychology, oh shit. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I went to Sydney. I was there for a year and discovered Melbourne. And I was like, maybe I should move to Melbourne. Yeah. And that's how I ended up here. And did you, go, did you transfer your studies to Melbourne University as well? No, I ended up doing philosophy and international relations at La Trobe. Okay. So I had heard that the La Trobe department was pretty quirky. Um, and it turned out to be like probably the quirkiest academics that I've ever met. But um, um, yeah, so I, I did that, I finished that. And then that's absolutely nothing related to what I do at work. Maybe the philosophy part, I, I, I like to think so, but nothing really related to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you want to talk a bit about the work that you do now then? <laughs> All, I know a little bit about it. Uh, Code for Australia is what I know, but yeah, please just elaborate on, on what you're doing. Sure, so I wear a couple of hats. Um, the main one is Code for Australia, which is a non-profit that is aiming to change 
government to get them to do structural change in procurement, in technology that they use, in the demographics of the people that they have, as in can we interest people that go to Google to work in government, um, how they finance projects, like not everything needs to be $10 billion with a contract that locks them in forever. And we're doing that through opening up new channels for awesome people to create new stuff, both technologies, but also processes of doing stuff differently. So that's my main hand, um, and I've been doing that for two years and a bit. My other hat is called Creative Suburbs, um, which is a kind of like community engagement um, platform for mostly urban planning initiatives. And that started off as a pet project. I lived and still live in South Yarra. And for those of you who don't know much about South Yarra, it's quite boring. It's extremely central, but extremely boring. So I developed a lot of ideas on how to improve South Yarra. And, and quite wealthy, I guess, is the other... Yeah, everyone's general, yeah. very pretty and everyone's very organized. Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on, where's your pajamas? And like, anyway, your rough looking dog or not necessarily puddles everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so developed a heap load of ideas on how to improve South Yara, And then I thought, well, how would I go about making this? So chances are that if I was going to go to council, they were just going to congratulate me and give me a citizen of the year sort of thing. Um, but what I thought was, well, chances are that if I have an idea, you have an idea. And we should just get together and make them happen. Um, so we started off like that. We did a couple of projects. Um, and then I discovered that urban planning, the industry, does community engagement. But they usually work on a hypothesis model. Like, we've built this. What do you think? So we'll, what we're trying to do at Creative Suburbs is to flip the model and come up with a bunch of ideas that people want to do, make them as little prototypes, and then inform councils, property developers, on what they, those places should look like. So kind of like flip, yeah, flipping the model of that process. So what's an example of something you've done? It sounds like you're bringing some principles from, say, lean thinking and, and agile thinking here in the software development world to urban and community development. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. true? Um, I guess so. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, totally. I, I think what I'm, I guess the way that I would describe it would be kind of like makers. People um, are hungry to do their own stuff. And they've got all the capabilities and all the resources that they have to make their own stuff, whether that's a community garden or whether that's an app to do, I don't know, whatever you want it to be. To be. Um, and I feel that common, that stuff is applicable anywhere to urban planning, to software development, to government. Yeah. So can you elaborate on an example then of something with um Creative neighborhoods, is that what it's called? Suburbs. Creative suburbs, sorry. That, something with creative suburbs that you've actually, yeah, what's a tangible example with creative suburbs that you've brought to being? Sure, so in Richmond, I'm not sure if you know the back street of Richmond train station, which is Stewart Street. I do, yeah, I know it well. Cool. Yeah. Have you seen the wall 
mural. The graffiti. Yeah, I have. The right. whale. There's a whale and a bit so, further down there's some other things. Yeah. Yeah, so we did that. Um, right. And the way that we did it was someone approached us um, and said, I want to paint um, this wall, which back then it was more than 100 meters of um, gray painted wall that looked horrendous and usually would get tagged because it was just gray. And Metro trains will pay um, people to paint the wall every week to cover the tags. So they said, I want this wall to, be, um, to have some artwork. So what we did was engage Metro to give us permission and fund a third of the project. Then we approached City of Yara to fund the other third and then we crowdfunded the other third from the community. Once we got, had the money, we put a call out to anyone to tell us what they wanted to have on the wall. So what you see on the wall is what people wanted to do, um, reinterpreted by artists. Mm. So um, I think there was an owl, there's a tiger because of Richmond Tigers, of course, is what was going to be there. Um, there's a whale. Um, there's oh, kind of like a foresty thing that is kind of like um, in outer space. And I think that's it. And there's other ones that we didn't do, but um, there, there's more artwork further down. Yeah. yeah. So that's one project that I, I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool to walk past and just see it. Um, I did that, or I facilitated that. Yeah, it's really cool to walk past. Every time, I must have walked past that 50 times, and every time it, it catches my attention, and it's interesting to look at. Like, mm. it's a great piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I think through that, like, we can change the model of, like, how stuff it's designed in a service provision approach. So a bench is a place to sit, but it doesn't need to be designed as a bench. It could be a bench in the form of a boat or like colorful that looks like a piano or so I think those sort of slight changes can change the relationship that you have to your city so it's like oh that wall that has this graffiti art or that bench that looks like a piano like things can be a little bit more special I think yeah you're talking about how this idea came to you and it was like well if I've got an idea other people probably have the same idea or a similar idea I I don't know about everyone else but I I walk through cities and have similar thoughts to what you're talking about and I redesign intersections and parks and think about benches and how people flow through have you with creative suburbs is there a way have you created a platform for people to submit these ideas or is it more something that's just coming from you or you know what what is it at the moment so it is a platform for other people to provide input not necessarily on anything at all which is a little bit unfortunate we we try to convince a couple of local governments and state government that that should be the way but it turns out that it's a bit hard <laughs> to convince them but so we do those projects now we do it on on a project based so for example at the moment where um, transforming 27 kilometers of concrete into a parkland um, out in the west of um, Melbourne. So if you're going to the airport from the city, you would perhaps have seen a pipeline that goes all the way from Flemington to Werribee. So it's 27 kilometers of just like sewage just going through that. And we've convinced um, Melbourne Water and a bunch of other organizations that own and manage that land to build a parkland 
and it's going to be through stages there's still like only one eighth of the funding behind it but we've started somewhere we need to make an awesome um, story about it get people's ideas on what they would like to see that to see there and then hopefully build the, that will be able to convince the other people to to build the parkland so there's, like, there's, there's 27 kilometers <laughs> is that what you're saying? pretty unreal yeah yeah so when we when we um thought about the project we we're like this is not gonna happen and then when we actually um started scoping the project it's like yeah there's 27 kilometers of concrete that can be come probably i'm not even sure we tried i think someone has um done a bit of research on this but it might be the longest park like urban park in the world yeah. or it could be we hope yeah <laughs> that sounds pretty amazing i'd like to see your plans for that as well we'll see we're on stage one uh like 10 million dollars to go <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm imagining you've been to the highline in new york have you done the highline or you've heard about it yeah yeah totally so i think one of our my colleague was tweeting the other day about it and he was saying like we're launching a project that is making the highline look a bit tiny yeah <laughs> it's like you sort of feel proud about that too. yeah <laughs> so okay so you'll come up with is it where will these ideas come from? Is it from the people that work inside the organization that will have an idea? This is the project that we're going to work on. How do we now engage the various stakeholders and get community support and get other people involved with this? Well, it's anyone. Anyone can go into like our website and yeah, so we've got different projects. We've got another one in, in Darabin and similar sort of stuff. Um, some less um, ambitious. But same sort of concept, anyone can do it, both people that um, work in the area, that live in the area, they can put up ideas. We usually pick one or two that we prototype um, in the meantime. Um, so we get more people to see that because at the moment, if you provide input, there is no perk for you to provide an input. It's like, well, so what if I provide my, my ideas? So what we do is provide a, a perk for your participation. Like if you. Um, tell us what you want, it might happen on a very small, tiny scale, but um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's really cool. I, um, I get so excited about cities and what makes a good city work and you know, how to rejuvenate them. What are the principles that you draw upon for this kind of work? You know, why? Is it just about creating a good city or, you know, an idea, you know, you said you talked about, I've got an idea, maybe other people do as well, but what principles do you draw upon for yourself? Like, why are you doing this stuff? So I, so we, the thing that we were discussing before is that it's about like people have everything that they need to, um, to come up with their, their own projects. And I feel all we need to do is provide that platform for them to step on um, to build those projects and it's a sort of same principle that we have at Code for Australia that it's kind of like government and organizations need to become platforms that allow citizens, public servants, private sector to come together and work on whatever is of interest. Yeah. So you, you, what you're kind of saying there is that people have these ideas and there's things that need to be done. Often all they need is activating and yeah. you're providing a platform for activation. Totally. Yeah. A bit of um, 
bit of push or a bit of support, which it's kind of like, if you think about all the things that you, you like to do, like everyone has a, a wish list. Yeah. Like I, for example, myself, I want to sail around the world, but that's sort of like a thing that I want to do. And like sometimes you just need someone to push you a little bit or to provide that platform to like, oh, here's, I don't know, some sort of way that you can start sailing every weekend. Or That, that was a silly example, but <laughs> you get the gist of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like those, those things that we dream for, they're not broken down into very tangible, low friction steps. They can seem unattainable. Totally. Whereas often they're not. Yeah. Um, with the people that you do start to get involved, what's some of the feedback been about being able to contribute in this way to a project? So I have stepped back a little bit from day-to-day -day operations from Creative Suburbs, but from, um, I guess, the feedback that we got, um, or that we're still getting is, uh, this was amazing, I want to do more. So for example, with the um, Richmond train station example, we've had maybe, I don't know how many people, contacting us, so the wall is not finished. And they want that wall to be finished. Yeah. Um, and it's so amazing to see that from their perspective, like we're not even doing anything. And we've gone to Metro and say like, hey, like people want this stuff, they're willing to, um, fund a lot more than they were going to before give us permission like oh no it's not part of our, our strategy or right? it's like oh you just don't get the point yeah it makes you just want to go out go down to the wall and do it yourself <laughs> totally totally and I feel like that's sort of stuff you have to do like for example in South Yarra so one of my ideas was to have a pedestrian crossing so we approached council and they um, said no that's sort of managed by big roads and then we approach big roads and they're like no it can't happen because of traffic management stuff so we painted one did you <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of buddies and i um just like put on high like vests and stuff put <laughs> witches hats and we painted the the pedestrian crossing and the next day people were like walking safely across the street <laughs> cars were stopping cars were stopping and it only lasted for maybe a month, but a whole month of safety was pretty fun. Um, then it got ripped up or the paint washed away? Yeah, the, no, no, no. So we bought like legit paint to do that. Um, like eventually council, like, cause we were tweeting about it and, and like, it's like, haha, this is awesome. And they eventually found out and they, they kind of like they scrapped the concrete, the, the pavement, which I don't know what they used to do that with, but, um, Anyway, so it's not there anymore. <laughs> but if you ever go to Yarra Street in South Yarra, you will find that on the interse intersection of um, Yarra Street and Turak, it's held to cross that street. It's a tiny, tiny street, and they're building more and more apartments. Um, and yeah, hopefully they'll come to, I don't know, some sort of bridge system <laughs> if a pedestrian crossing is too complicated. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, why don't we switch a little bit then and talk a little bit more about Code for Australia. Is that that's something that you're more involved with now than Creative Suburbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that consumes like a, a fair bit of time. Yeah, and is that is that your venture or are you working on it with other people? Yeah, yeah, so um, three, there's three co-founders and 
I, the two of them are part of the board. I'm the one running it. And yeah, so it's been alive for two years and we're trying to kick goals. Yeah. Where did it actually come from? You say, you know, you've got three co-founders and you're the one working in it. Why? Yeah, where did this <laughs> Sounds actually... Sounds like that was, that was a trap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the idea... So I met Dan, um, one of my co-founders, in at a startup leadership course that we were doing when I was building Creative Suburbs, um, when it had turned into a business. And then he was building um, another startup of his. And he came across Code for America, which is essentially a sister organization that does pretty much the same stuff mm -hmm. at a much bigger scale and they had been going on for maybe two or three years um, when we discovered it discovered it and Dan said hey um, I'm doing this do you want to get involved and I was like sure and then when we had our first meeting over beers it was like he was doing that he had uh, absolutely hadn't started um, <laughs> doing anything he was just like getting people together <laughs> Um, so we didn't do anything for six months. Um, we bought the domain, we put our Facebook page, a Twitter um, name, and did nothing for it, like, except telling people that we were doing it, of course. <laughs> but, um, and then we got approached that from uh, Melbourne University that they wanted to run a project with us and a bunch of other state government um, departments. And we're like, sure, I, yeah, totally. Um, what do we do again? How do we do it? Um, so they, they found you on through Twitter or Facebook or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. And then we, then that was kind of like the moment of realization for me to like, this is actually something, like it's a business and it needs someone to take it seriously. So I was the, the one who took the, the leap and jumped on it and yeah, two years in and there's been maybe 16 people through the program. Yeah. Or through the organization. Talk us through the pipeline of how that actually works. So uh, a government department, whether it be state or federal, I suppose, maybe local as well, I don't know. Yeah, so most of the work that we've done is through states, but yeah. we have worked with local government um, and we're dipping our toes into federal government. Um, we were not planning to, but uh, yeah, the Digital Transformation Agency, which is a new um, office at the federal government that is, its objective is to transform digital uh, or services to become digital and, and things to be more streamlined. That got launched last year in 2000, and, well, last year in 2015. And yeah, since then it's just been optimal for us to just go like, hey, like maybe there is something that we can help with. Um, but to step back on to your question about like like stepping through through that process so there's there's a couple of big things that there's two things that we focus on one is doing cultural change so in every government department there are people who are trying to do things differently but they're against a beast um, the way that I try that, that I imagine it or that I like to describe it is a towboat trying to push um, uh, one of those cargo ships. There's like this tiny thing that is trying to go like 90 degrees, 90 degrees against this ginormous thing. Um, and they move it slightly, but they need more people on board. So 
we try to help them as much as we can. So it's about spreading the word about what they're doing, building um, awesome stuff with them, so then they can spread the word um, and spread the work of how they do things. Mm. Um, so that's a cultural change piece. And the other one is around building civic technology. So we call te civic technology technology that um, services citizens or services government because there is a tech boom, but that tech boom is not benefiting government. Like you don't hear about a massive startup that services government. You don't hear about the amazing new technologies that government is using because there's a lot of things that are broken, like from procurement to financing. Um, so we, we open up new channels on how that technology can be um, developed and delivered. So for example, we have a program called The Fellowship that calls on civic-minded programmers, designers, program managers to go into government for six to 12 months and their role is to basically play entrepreneurship in government. Um, let's find the problem, let's build a solution. Out of the five things that you give a go, one will have legs and you're gonna scale that as much as possible. So the glitter of the program will be on the fellows build X. But most importantly is what process happened? How many people did we brought along in that, in, in that journey? How many people are we, within government are changing the mind of how to approach opportunities, challenges? Yeah. Um, so people, the people that come in, they get paid to come in? Yeah, so, well, we provide a stipend. Um, we yeah. don't pay market rate. We're a non-profit and we get 99.9% .9 of our funding from government and we can only provide a stipend. In Code for America, they have government paying for half of the program and then they get philanthropy um, to pay the other half. Unfortunately, we haven't discovered such generosity in, in Australia, so yeah. we're relying on... And they, they still pay a stipend in, in Code for America, so even though they, they get all that money, they can only pay a stipend, but um, it's much bigger much yeah. than what we can pay. So the people that are coming are usually... They might take a leave of absence from their current employment or they might have a, a gap year or something like that. They've got some savings to support themselves generally. And then they'll come in because they want to... They see the benefit in contributing their knowledge to a, a civic service like this as well. Totally. So it's like the common denominator of people is people who want to do good, who believe in value-driven work. Um, and who've got amazing skills and that unfortunately they might not be using elsewhere so again there's where a they tech currently are yeah. yeah where they currently are um, again there's there's a tech boom and it's awesome it's like lots of new jobs but unfortunately some of those new jobs are not very exciting yeah. so what about if what what if you could be your own boss um, for 12 months go and, and Again, playing entrepreneurship in government, whatever you build, you can turn it into a business yeah. um, and then fly with it. I feel that there's, um, well, I hope that there's a lot more opportunities like that. The difficult part that I'm guessing, I've worked in a few government departments as a consultant before as well, but the difficult part I imagine, which probably plays back to the cultural transformation piece you're talking about there, is finding, finding a, a a nice nest to plonk those people where they they can start this process or you know a supportive group of people 
but you were saying that people generally reach out for you. Is that reach out to you inside those government departments? Is that the case? Um, it's starting to be a little bit like that, but no, like we've had to do a lot of convincing. Like we initially wanted to have like calendar fellowships. So every, like it would be a whole class of fellows starting in January, finishing in December. Um, but trying to convince government to do things differently, plus do it at your own time, and to work in an uncertain um, process, because when the fellows go in, we can't guarantee anything. Like, what are they gonna work on? Well, we don't know. We need to go and find out ourselves, or the fellows themselves, to investigate challenges. So that is a, it's a big convincing um, mm. exercise. The best way, the, the way that we've, we're now um, asking governments to work with us is give us a challenge. Like, mm. right, this is a problem that we have. Um, but then we get them to sign off to say, we can address that challenge if it's a legitimate challenge, or we can to totally um, flip it because that is not the real problem that we're trying to solve. Like it's something bigger or something smaller or whatever. So yeah, lots of convincing, but there are awesome people within government um, at every level that are trying to do things differently and they are the best um, advocates for the stuff that we're doing. Yeah. Can you talk about um, something really interesting that's come out of the process so far? Sure. So two examples that come to mind. One is with the Department of Justice here in Victoria. So we've got uh, a fellowship going there and when um, we started working with them we found that over 60% of people um, that are given a minor um, offence they plead guilty um, and they already know that they're going to plead guilty before even the court they have to go to court but thinking from a user's perspective if you go to court or if you have to go to court let's say for a like a minor offense could be like you run a traffic light um, you get given a date and after you're given a date um, you are told to go to court and you have to go to court for the whole day because they can't guarantee at what time your court hearing is going to be um, even though you're going to go there and say i'm going to plead guilty so we build a thing that is now testing the on doing that online so like yes I'm gonna plead guilty like here it is um, I do it on my phone or on my laptop and then that is stored in a way that then the magistrates can get all that information that it's accurate and then they can follow up with you if, if they need to that's one um, another one that was that is very interesting um, is in New South Wales we were working with the Department of Education and the fellow built an app to exchange information between parents and schools. So at the moment, if you have a kid and you're trying to look for a school for your kid, you go into Google, you find the school, you ring them up. Is this in my catchment area? If it is, tick. Um, if your kid has some sort of, I don't know, special requirements around mobility, then you can ask the school and then tick. So that's kind of like the best case scenario. If not, um, then you go back to Google and repeat until you get it. 
So one stop shop, I live here, which is my school, bam. Here's the information, does it have mobility requirements or whatever sort of um, extra things you need. Um, so awesome from a user's perspective, the department loved it. When we were testing it, we found that a lot of schools um, were not abiding by their catchment areas. So the department said, well, we can't release this. Like, as soon as we release this, we're going to get sued by, like, <laughs> thousands of parents that um, this is my catchment area and I can't go, I can't send my school here. Yeah. So we're working through that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or the, the department is working through, like, what are we going to do? They're still going to release it, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it kind of, like, opened this big bucket of, problems that much much bigger um, than parents finding a school for their kids yeah yeah it's fascinating what bringing uh, transparency and data to the public domain can actually do right totally as well totally. yeah I'm curious so the fellows come in you call them the fellows or yes. the, yeah they, they come into the organization they they might have a mandate they might have been brought a problem they might investigate that problem. I guess they might, I mean, a whole lot of meetings or uh, workshops or rummaging around, just observing the organization. Do they then come with a proposal to build a team and get resources to build something like the two examples that you've just mentioned as well? So they build them th themselves. So right. it's a team of three that we usually get a designer, a developer, and a project manager slash community organizer. So yeah. someone builds it, someone makes it pretty, and someone gets the community involved. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's up to them. And it's pretty impressive what three people can come up with. Yeah. Um, so, so far, we haven't needed to put extra resources to any of the teams. Um, there is one project that we just started with the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Um, first time that I got that um, acronym right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a massive project. It's very detailed, the, the sort of technologies that we need to use. Um, so we might need to bring more people in, but um, so far we haven't had to do that. I'm so interested in the, the two areas that you're working in there because um, I guess because I, I've worked in those government departments, as I mentioned, and I, I just have a, a part-time hobby of observing cities as well. And there is so much scope for improvement and there are things that we interact with on a daily basis. And um, the small improvements or the big improvements that you can make through these businesses, I think, are just super exciting. Do you have... I mean, are you excited about where where these things could go? Totally, totally. Like, um, I don't have a clear vision of what that could be, but absolutely, um, like, I'm excited of, of where things could go because I'm sort of learned, like, doing entrepreneurship stuff, you learn to work under uncertainty and you get excited about uncertainty. It's okay to not know the future. And that's what's exciting about it. Um, we know we're doing the right things, or at least I hope I am. Um, and it's kind of like, all right, let's see what we, what, what's next. Yeah. Um, are there other projects that you're working on at the moment as well? Yeah, so I am, um, 
I guess, trying to. So this makes it a, a little bit official um, about <laughs> the project. So it's kind of like what we, were, first. <laughs> what we were referring to, like what, what are some of those support things? So the best thing to do if you're launching a project is put it online or tell someone else about it. <laughs> yeah. And then you go like, oh shit, it is happening. <laughs> um, so the project is a homebrewed beer competition um, called Hops Aboard. And the idea- support. Aboard. Hops aboard. Yeah. Nice. So I, I do like sailing. I wasn't joking when I said the sailing thing. Yeah. But um, the idea is, or the problem that I'm fixing is home brewing is an amazing thing. Um, probably the best beer that I've ever tried has been home brewed. But chances are that if you're a home brewer, only your buddies or your neighbors get to taste it. So what about if you could come up with a platform for your homebrew beer to be scaled um, at like commercial scale for a period of time? Yeah. So that's what it is. So every year, the, the long-term vision is every year there's competition, there's a winner, and then that winner gets their beer produced at scale, at commercial scale throughout Australia for a whole year. Um, profits go for them, for a little bit for um, um, sponsors, um, and yeah, and the MVP is going to be a mini homebrewing competition at Chapel Street Cellars, my sort of semi-local bottle shop that I, I love. Yeah. Um, and what we're going to be doing is calling up homebrewers to submit the beer. We're going to produce, I think it's uh, 10,000 liters of beer for whoever wins. Yeah. And Through the Chapel Street Sellers, do they have a, who's gonna be the microbrewer? So that's what we're looking at at the okay. moment. There is a, there is a, there are a couple of like mini breweries that are keen to help. Um, so there's one in Geelong um, and a couple of other ones. So home brewing and, and craft brewing is a thing mm. now. So, um, which I think it's for the good. Um, so yeah, like one of them is gonna potentially help us to do that and that's all and then we get to drink amazing beer at a bottle shop. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Can you please invite me? <laughs> totally. You can become a judge. <laughs> yeah. So also the judges are gonna be just normal people. All right. Like yeah. no fancy like how's the body of this beer or the notes. It's just like you like it? Awesome. <laughs> Done. Thumbs <laughs> up or thumbs down. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so if people are interested in that, is there a website that they can go to? Or? It's hopsaboard.com, um, which is live now. There hasn't been any much work done, but I hope by the time this goes live, yeah. there will be everything there. So I hope that there's... Now you've got a deadline. Yeah, it's now I've got a deadline, <laughs> which is good. So a couple of questions that I ask people as we start to wrap up. The first one is around yourself. I mean, what's a, what's a subtle or small thing that you've changed in your own life that's enabled you to be where you are today, or sustains you on where you are today? So I referred to this earlier, um, and I cannot emphasize enough the, the importance that I find on being comfortable with uncertainty. It's, it's pretty amazing to, like from everything, from your um, relationship with your partner to like work to absolutely everything you need to or I feel that being comfortable with uncertainty is crucial to be able to 
be okay with things. Mm. Like keep going, keep working on stuff, and it's okay if you don't know the future. Um, if you really believe that you're doing the right thing, it will take you to the best place, whether that's where you planned it, planned to be, or a completely different place. And it's okay if you change. Um, and I want to say that that I learned that through traveling. Um, yeah, it was one, at this point that I was traveling around like China or Nepal, and it just hit me. It was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like not knowing where I'm going, and it's okay. Yeah. yeah. When you say you learned it that way, was that when you discovered that you were okay with it, or was there, a, you know, did you notice that initially you were not comfortable with that uncertainty? So traditionally, a bit of both and, and I hate when people answer that way like a bit of both it's like of course it's a little bit of both all the time <laughs> uh, or when people say like oh that's a really good question you're not saying that it, of course it's a really good question I've, I've thought about that question I'm just trying to make time to think about that question that's what I'm trying to do now no I'm kidding <laughs> you're doing really well <laughs> uh, what was the question <laughs> can you oh so le learning about uncertainty um, yeah I feel like any person like they feel everyone feels safe if they know where they're going how things are going to be done um, and when you put them in a situation that it's not um, when you don't know then you feel uncomfortable and yeah I, I used to feel and still feel like that um, but it also was really enjoying not knowing what the future was like in that um, time that I was traveling so it was six months of traveling through China, Nepal and India and it was like, I don't really care. Like, I, I'm just gonna really enjoy this time and mm. just do whatever I want. <laughs> I totally, I totally agree with you. Um, <laughs> I find that, I don't know, you might want to reflect on this, but different times in my life, I'm more able to be okay with uncertainty than not. Like right now, I'm looking for some paid work and I'm finding it really hard to just grapple with the uncertainty around that and like what I'll end up doing and you know um, yeah I'm, I'm actually finding it really hard but at the same time you know even just listening to you talk about uncertainty I'm like actually this is pretty exciting like anything could happen like things can change in a heartbeat you know totally. one phone call or one chance meeting and everything can change totally yeah. and that's how i feel like code for australian and creative suburbs happens like things were not pretty and happy and like like it took a lot of freaking work mentally physically like it was hard and it's still freaking hard and a lot of those things that i got knocked back and like things that didn't go wrong i was like why is this happening and now it's just like oh like maybe like if that had happened i wouldn't be here and i'm like extremely happy to be here um not that i've achieved everything that i want to achieve but i'm, I'm working towards what i want and it's i validated what i want to do yeah yeah, yeah it's really good the, um the last question which is actually usually the second last question that i ask but i've got them a bit mixed up today <laughs> but it's um outside of the things that you're working on at the moment with uh, Hops Aboard and uh, Creative Suburbs and Code for Australia. Is this something that you daydream about uh, disrupting one day in the future or being part of disrupting? Oh, I thought you were going to say like 
something doing. I was like, yes, yeah, sailing around the world, but <laughs> it's not really disrupting. That could disrupt my life. So that's why I'm thinking that, um, yeah, disrupting my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be cool. Um, so yeah, I, uh, let's just use that as an example. I want to sail around the world and I reckon it's going to take at least 18 months to do it. Um, and I feel that if I do that, I totally will disrupt stuff like for example creative suburbs and code for australia they're in their infancy like they're not a like now i can take say like here's the helm for both of them to someone else but they've not reached the the scale that i want them to 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 be at um then there's all the other stuff that normally happens that partners and like life and family and stuff um so yeah like i we i'm really um keen to do that if mm. i can to disrupt that projection of like traditionally i don't know buying a house getting married and all that stuff and and working just working on 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 pro pro professional stuff um yeah sailing yeah. <laughs> i think that idea of disrupting your life periodically is such a powerful idea it's a great one yeah when are you planning to do that? Well, I originally said that I was going to do it um, on my 30th birthday. So I've got a year and a half yeah. to go. Is it? I'm 28. Yeah, so a yeah. year and a half. Um, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm making lots of official yeah, interviews here. You here. <laughs> this is the, the podcast we're, confessional. Yeah, we're going to have another follow-up in two years. It's like, so... <laughs> Tell me about what you did. Yeah, man. we will. <laughs> Alvaro, so good to be oh. chatting with you today. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for sharing so openly and setting those deadlines on yourself as well. <laughs> <laughs> awesome to be here and awesome to be part of this awesome podcast. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.